Thank you so much, choir. That was so beautiful, powerful. It goes right along with what we're, what we're talking about today. If you hadn't caught the, caught the theme, it's, 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 it's unity. The unity of the body, even in all of our differences. The unity of the body. And it takes a hard work. And it's easy to forget. About 20 years ago... Um, I attended the worst church meeting I'd ever I will have I have ever attended in my life. It was nasty. It was in um, it was in Wasilla, Alaska, beautiful place, lots of wonderful people, and uh, and it was our first year. It was in the fall, and we were there in Wasilla. Uh, I was hired to start a new church campus in nearby. Palmer, Alaska, that didn't have a church. It didn't have a Methodist church. And um, so the senior pastor, Mark Conrad, bless his heart, said, Bruce, I think we need to ch- we're going to change the name of the church. Um, and don't worry, we're never going to change the name of St. Luke, so don't worry about that. Um, so, so we went there. Now, he, it, it was all really good intentions. What we were trying to do was to say, now we're on two campuses, so we really can't be... First Church of Wasilla, not with Warren Palmer. So we thought, what name could we pick that would that would represent more of an attitude or who we are rather than a location? Palmer's about 15 miles from Wasilla, and I would preach there and then drive up to Wasilla. So we thought instead of First United Methodist Church Wasilla, we would call it Christ First. UMC. Doesn't that sound good? And Mark and I mean, yeah, Mark and I thought, you know, once we do the vote, right? All in favor of Christ, raise your hand. All opposed to Christ. We thought it'd be easy, right? I mean, who's gonna say, nope, don't want that? You know. Oh boy. It was a terrible, terrible meeting. It was a really bad idea. We got a we got a professional from Anchorage to come in and and try to wield the conversation and to keep it positive, a mediator. And I mean, he was running for the door about 15 minutes in, I could tell. People were bringing their baptismal certificates. Hey, this is what I got baptized. Why? We got to change this. Tell me, I don't understand. And it was. And we were at each other's throats. And Jen and I drove home. Both of us were kind of in tears. And I thought, man, we went 4,000 miles away from home for this, right? First month in Alaska. Conflict is hard, isn't it? It's even harder when we care about things. We all care about the same things, but when we see things differently, it is a bear, it is a mess. Disagreements are even tougher in the church because, after all, Paul said we were a fellowship, that we as a church are a fellowship. We are a koinonia of Christ, fellowship in Jesus Christ. And so it just breaks your heart and soul when things crack away and, and, and we lose our center that is Christ. Koinonia is the ongoing dynamic connection we have with each other and in God. Just what the choir is saying. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We are truly knit together by God 
And our greatest loyalty of all that supersedes any, including our most cherished loyalties, is Jesus Christ. It's what Paul says holds it all together. He has knit us together as one family. And so in this letter, it's the longest letter that Paul writes. Um, He's got a lot of things to say about this church. A lot of bones to pick with this church. There's a lot of bad stuff going on that would make you blush. Like sort of days of our lives, guiding light kind of stuff, right? Sexual misconduct, abuse of the Lord's Supper. How horrible would that be? You know, profaning the Lord's Supper, Um, people even doubting the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those are all really hard and difficult and and tough things to deal with. And you know what's the first thing he says he's got to deal with? What is the first issue in this letter? Not Not those. A divided church. A fractured church. 25% of 1 Corinthians is actually about division and strife before all the other problems. Oh, well, I follow Apollo. Apollo's a great preacher. Oh, I follow Peter because Peter actually got to meet the live Jesus. I don't know about this this Paul guy, but but I follow him. Well, I follow that person. I follow this. Was Christ divided for you, says Paul? Did I hang on the cross for you? Did your opinion die for you? No, says Paul. First thing we realize here is don't put your eyes on leaders, church. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He is the lens through which we look at life. He is the one who centers us. And no leader can compare to Jesus. Don't let these divisions tear you apart. If you even look later in his letter after what Tim after what Tim read in 1 Corinthians, if you look at Corinthians 3, just listen to this. It's beautiful. Paul is just rolling out all the metaphors he can to, to drive this home. He says in verse three, oh, chapter 3, 1 through, 1 through 9, he says, And so, brothers and sisters, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ." I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for solid food. Even now, you are still not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For as long as there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you are not. You are of the flesh and behaving according to human inclinations. For when one says, I belong to Paul or I belong to Apollos, are you not merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants and the one who waters have a common purpose and each will receive wages according to the labor of each. For we are God's servants working together. You are God's field, God's building together. And then 21 and 22 quickly. So let no one boast about human leaders. Forget about that. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos, 
Cephas or the, wor- or, or the world or life or death or the, or the present or the future all belong to you. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. It's funny, in our leadership team meeting, we were, um, some of our leaders were outside. And somebody walked by and looked at Max and said, are you Keith Tonkle? That's what they said. Are you Keith Tonkle? Max has a nice head of hair. Keith had a great, you know, quaff and good, good thick head of hair. He was a wonderful guy. I'm, I'm sure you took it as a compliment. I think the world of Keith. Um, some, sometimes, you know, only a few. I mean, all we preachers wish we were like John Case or Keith Tonkel or all these people that are bigger than life. But most of us will never rise to that. We just, we just do the best we can. And it's probably a good thing. Because if Keith were alive today, he would say, I didn't die for you. I wasn't preaching about my love, but about the love of Christ. And so would John Case, for that matter. No more boasting about human leaders. One thing I love about St. Luke's is this. We do work hard for unity. And we try to stave off factionist thinking. Tribal thinking. We try to keep the main thing, the main thing here, which is one of what of our leaders said on Saturday. Let's keep the main thing, the main thing. Why? Why is it such a big deal to Paul? Why should it be such a big deal to St. Luke's? Because on the positive side, there is power to unity. Hear me now. All of us rowing together, Working together, pulling together, putting our ego aside. There's power in that. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, it says one can put a thousand to flight, two can put ten thousand to flight. Psalm 133 Oh, behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together. God will be there. God will bless that unity. Jesus' high priestly prayer that we'll read in late Lent before he gives his life, within hours of giving his life. Oh Lord, I pray that they may be one. That they may be one. My prayer is not just for them alone, but for others, for others who will come later, that's you and me, so that why? They may be brought to complete unity. And then Jesus goes on and says, Then the world will know. Our unity is powerful because the world will see, wow, they put aside their egos and their differences and they've centered themselves around something bigger than their opinion. There must be something to that group at St. Luke's. Now I'm going to sound like a storefront preacher here and I was in Palmer, Alaska, so I I get it honest. But one of the primary tactics of the devil is to divide and conquer. That's how he gets us. Because we're more vulnerable when we're divided. A lone sheep is a vulnerable sheep. Maybe that's why Jesus talked about the parable of the the one sheep, to bring it back to the 99. Why? Because a lone sheep is vulnerable and it won't stand. Paul talks about the cross of Christ. That's what we're centered on. we got all kinds of crosses here to focus on. We carry the cross in this place because that is our power. 
and we are decentered by the cross. The cross is our, our focus. It's not our loyalty to a preacher or a teacher or a denomination, or even a nationality or a culture. No, the gospel message is about the unearned, unmerited, undeserved love of God in Jesus Christ. Full stop. That's it. That's all we got. And as they say on NFL football teams, it's all we need, right? We all we got. We all we need. We got the cross. Christ is our center. When we give in to our commitment to unity, and it is a lot of hard work. I think some comedian said it like this. Everybody's somebody's weirdo. Did you know that? Do you know there's somebody in this world that looks at you walk by and says, boy, is that a weird person right there? That's you. That's me. Right? But we don't give in to that. We're all broken and imperfect and weirdos in all kinds of ways. Because when we give in to it, it's, it's a sign of spiritual immaturity. One thing, one thing in our leadership team, one thing I loved is that one of our older, more experienced leaders this weekend, she stood up and she said, you know, I just love seeing some of these young people stepping up and leading. Isn't that awesome? So like one of my older people didn't feel threatened. They were just like loving the fact that they saw all these people in the room. And then one of my, our youngest people on the team, when we were talking, he told me, he said, there's many reasons why I came and started coming, but the, but the one reason I loved is I saw the same faces of, of, these, of, these, more, um, of these older people and people who've been here a while, and they just keep coming back and keep committing themselves. So our younger people saw the beauty in our older people. Older people saw the beauty in our younger people, and I just could hear the angels sing. I could just see the cross. It's like, well, yes, yes. But my goodness, isn't faction and division, doesn't it feel good for a little bit? Come on, be honest, right? Feels good for a moment to be immature, to fly off the handle, to start gossiping just for a moment. Feels so good. I told them exactly what I was thinking. I took my ball and I went home. See, the problem when we take our ball and we go home, we're all alone. You see, there's a spiritual realm we're talking about. There's something way deeper than just budgets and people and church. But if you and I could pull back that spiritual realm, we would know there's something deeper going on. In another letter in Paul, you can read it in Galatians 5, Paul lists this laundry list of things. And a lot of them are kind of like days of our lives stuff, just licentiousness and anything goes. He, he does. But then the, but that the last five things he says in Galatians 5 all have to do with divisiveness, disunity, discord, rage. He says, quit it. Quit it. Quit it. So how do we do it? I wish I knew. Let me tell you what I try to do to keep myself in check. Because I can't fix you or anybody in this church. I can only fix myself. And so this is, this is what I've learned over the years. And in my failures as well, about how sometimes it works and uh, unity can be strengthened. This is how we fight the faction creep. Okay, here we go. One, just what one of our leaders said this weekend. Keep the main thing the main thing. 
Keep the main thing, main thing. This is what St. Augustine said in 354 AD, and then John Wesley either stole it or used it or quoted him or something. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity or love. Of course, we kind of keep the main thing, the main thing. God's love, good news, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, moving us forward, loving one another, being the church. Those are the main thing. Then there's some other things, you know, that, that are important, but maybe not essential. And maybe you've got a rock-solid opinion on it, and you've studied it, and you know it, but somebody else, lo and behold, uh-oh, they don't agree with me. Right? And then there's the things that really aren't important and aren't essential. And if, if you see that triangle, and the bottom of that triangle is blue, and the middle of it's green, and the top of it's red, stay in the blue. Just stay in the blue. Keep the main thing the main thing. Second, sometimes for me, I just have to choose not to be offended. It's kind of got to be a choice. If somebody ever said something kind of sideways to you and you kind of go, oh, you know. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's good just to let it go. You know, not everything has to be a battle. Not every slight. I mean, most of the time, um, sometimes when I interpret a slight, I just misinterpret it. I just didn't hear it right. And so what if it was, just let it go, let it go. This is, number three has been really good for me. Keep my mouth shut. Just keep my mouth shut. I don't have to engage in every controversial thing that pops up in my company. Just keep my mouth shut. It's okay. Now, I'm not saying never deal with difficult conversations. Of course we have to do that. But you know, most of the time, most of the time it's not a... You know, it's, we're better off just kind of being, knowing that we don't have to engage in every conversation. It takes a lot of humility. Four, I can show grace and humility to those who see things differently than I do. That takes a lot of strength and maturity. Just be okay with that. Not just to tolerate that person. Tolerate's not in the Bible, but love is, right? I can love that person. Even when somebody sees things differently than I do. Show of hands real quick. How many of you believe real strongly one thing at one point in your life and years later went, I was wrong? Raise your hand. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so humbling, isn't it? It's so humbling to realize that. But it happens sometimes because we're people and we're not God. And we're not omnipotent or omniscient like God is. So I can show grace and humility. And I can still love somebody and be loved. Number five. This is so big, y'all. It's the last thing. Remember that you're modeling for the spiritually immature the Jesus way. And how you respond to division and factions, you're teaching baby Christians how to act. And let me say, there are people who are watching. 
I don't know about you, but I've almost seen a fight break out over a church pew before. Have you ever seen that? I mean, sometimes we can get in a big, we can, we can, we can bloodlet over the color of the carpet, you know. It's, uh, it's, it's something else. But man, if you've ever seen a mature Christian deal with division or a slight or tackiness and decide not to return tacky for tacky, it is quite something to behold. And so your patience, now I'm just ta- I'm talking to my more seasoned Christians here, but your patience and your forbearance, not having to be right all the time, not having the last word, goes a long way. It teaches somebody who's younger than you in the faith how to act. Two pictures, actually. Well, I'm, I'm going to give you, uh, yeah, I'm gonna, let me give you two pictures of, of, of things that I think are beautiful. John Wesley and George Whitfield were like oil and water in the 1700s. But they preached. And George Whitfield taught John Wesley how to preach in the open air. That was kind of unheard of. And John Wesley was, they had a hard time appointing him to a church. And so he, uh, George Whitfield taught him how to preach under a tree. Or, or, or in places to the coal miners uh, in England where, where people would uh, hear for long distances. And he thought that was the most vile thing, you know. And, uh, but George Whitefield was doing it. He came over to America, Great Awakening, all that, came back. And uh, they were kind of on the same team, except they weren't. George Whitefield was a dyed-in-the-wool Calvinist. I mean, double-barrel Jonathan Edwards preaching Calvinist. John Wesley was not. John Wesley was Arminian. And I don't want to get into all the differences there, but we Methodists are, are, are kind of lean on that end. And it's really all about some of the questions that we can't answer about human free will. Where does that stop and start with God's sovereignty? But that was a big deal back in the 1700s. And, it's, and it's, you know, we still work through this and talk about this. Um, but they would go kind of face-to-face over God and some things that maybe they thought were essential. And they had it out many times. But when George Whitfield died, who did he want in his will to do his eulogy but John Wesley? And John Wesley preaching the eulogy of someone in such a foreign and different Christian tradition than him was a statement to behold one time at Duke, we picked up two people from Kenya. This was in the late 90s. They were two preachers from Kenya. You may remember in the early 90s, the awful stuff going on in Kenya. People were killing each other in the streets. There was a tribe called the, the, um, the Tutsi and the Hutu. I think one of them was a majority tribe, 90%, the other 10%. The French, whatever reason, had, or they had gotten from the French all these machetes. I mean, it was horrible, hand-to-hand combat. Many people died. And so these two guys were on the van, and we were driving back to Duke Divinity School because we were doing a, 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 a forum on reconciliation. And somebody in the van asked him, he said, uh, they 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 asked him. Said, "What tribe are you? What what tribe are you in?" And it, probably not a good question to ask, really, because it was right on top of all this. But one happened to be Tutsi, who uh, who did a lot, uh, took a lot of life in that tribe, 
and one belonged to the Hutu tribe, and he lost his entire family. So you could feel it getting tense. And then one of them looked at the one who questioned, and he said, we both belong to the tribe of Jesus Christ. Um, Paul says quantity is worth it. It's worth it to try to understand each other, to assume best intentions, to do the best we can to hold one another because we're one family. We're stitched by Jesus Christ. In Wasilla that night, when we voted and we lost and we were so disgusted, we had that vote on September 10th, 2001. And the next day, we forgot about how people voted. And we held each other and we wept for our country, for us to find unity. And I can tell you, it's the one thing Paul says is worth fighting for, for us to fight for each other. May we always be one. Let us pray. Lord God, help bring us together. Help us to see differences and not, not, not focus on the differences, but focus on what, what keeps us together and what holds us together. May, be, may the cross of Christ be the thing that we focus on. Decenter us in our egos on the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, before we stand...